So in thinking about um, this concept, this title of unlawful until proven otherwise, a new turn on AI accountability, what we're trying to do here is to think about what would it look like if we were to really take seriously the many challenges that have been, um, that have come up against artificial intelligence applications, both in the field of human rights and civil liberties, and also in the field of effectiveness and consumer protection and just overall uh, soundness and fitness for purpose of AI. And you, know, you, could, you could put these two things together in terms of you know, repeated efforts and repeated revelations of AI systems. And for, for our purposes, we're not gonna be incredibly narrow about AI. We're gonna think about AI in terms of predictive analytics, um, uh, big data, um, a, a very wide range. And I know that there's presently a, a dispute, I think, in the EU about a potential narrowing of the, con the, the uh, definition of AI. So I want to emphasize that we're pretty broad ranging in, in our definition for this paper, um, that we, we essentially want to say that looking at all of the failures that have happened, all the findings of bias, um, of uh, disparate, discrimination, either in the form of disparate impact discrimination or sometimes even intentional discrimination, that there are a number of various uh, of contexts where we really would want to assume that the application of databases and advanced statistical methods that constitute much of the AI that evaluates humans is suspect and that it ought to have to go through some forms of um, licensure before it is used. And I think also that is that idea is particularly salient um, uh, over history, over decades, or even more than decades, um, uh, with respect to um, the side of AI that is about the consumer protection side, say, um, with respect to uh, running machines and running particularly very uh, sensitive uh, types of machines and transport, logistics, manufacturing, et cetera, um, that there are often certification bodies and others that are, act as either de facto licensors or even de jure licensors in a number of situations. And so that's sort of where we're taking this um, argument today. Um, in thinking about this licensure turn, one of the issues too, is that there's really been sluggish federal US federal government response to problematic AI. And I think that you know, a number of jurisdictions are realizing that they've got to catch up. And that's always a, a buzzword in the law and technology field is this worry about um, government not catching up with uh, technology. And of course, in, in lots of past work, um, I, I've advocated that there needs to be a more investment in resources and in um, uh, government capacity to understand problems in technical systems and to try to circumvent them and to reduce their impact. Um, but there's also an issue of the ability of the state to simply slow down technological innovation, right? And I think this is a, a fascinating issue because, you know, this. Technology law and regulation is one of the few areas of law where the foundations of the field and the foundations of the importance of the state are so often contested, right? I don't know how many times I've read in law and technology literature that the, the something along the lines of, you know, once this technology gets out there, it's unregulable. You can't stop it. You know, and then most recently that's been said about Bitcoin. And I think there's a, there's a very interesting um, uh, battle going on now where we're going to find out um, to what extent can governments like China 
simply say, look, we're, we're stopping this stuff. This is very, um, uh, it has the harms far outweigh the benefits. Um, or if we're going to see, in, at least in Bitcoin, some form of uh, a vindication of this uh, technology liberales sort of approach that it's, uh, it's inevitable and that uh, there's no way for governments to stop it. But even if we were to acknowledge that something like Bitcoin, the sort of like distri um, distributed ledger system over millions of computers worldwide were in some way unstoppable, the type of AI that we're discussing today is something that is by all means stoppable, right? Um, and there's the type of uh, problematic AI that could be uh, going out into the field is uh, largely developed by corporations that have extensive government relations and legal affairs departments are extensively regulated already. Um, in many cases rely on forms of government largesse such as procurement contracts or subsidies. And any of these are pressure points um, but if you take it really seriously with respect to a pressure point, you say that we're flipping the presumption of legality and we're saying essentially that um, we're not going to assume that something is legal and then uh, go after uh, illegal applications of it. But we, once we've seen a certain critical mass of problems, we assume um, illegality and put the burden of proof on the purveyor of the technology to demonstrate that it is actually fit for purpose, right? And that, that is what enables a more proactive government that can shape rather than merely respond to the largest industrial applications of AI to persons, right? And that is a, one of our major focuses of this uh, talk is the application of AI directly to persons in an evaluative context. It's something that I've covered in uh, the book, New Laws of Robotics in a chapter called um, Machines Judging Humans. Um, but also, I think in other uh, areas as well, it's, it's very important for this uh, proactive approach to be taken. And part of it is just a recognition of what uh, the relationship between government and the economy that has been um, uh, evaluated and theorized in the law and political economy movement. Um, it, this is a movement that I think is one of the most exciting intellectual movements in uh, contemporary law that really emphasizes the importance of the state in shaping the market and that questions any sort of pre-political understanding of markets beyond what the state is permitting or promoting, um, because there are just all of these ways in which the state um, can create an environment um, that is either very conducive to certain forms of technological development or other commercial development, um, or that is not. And so in many ways, you could think of this project as recognizing something that I I hope is becoming a um, received idea, a received and almost indisputable idea of law and political economy, of the incredible importance of the state in structuring markets, um, and then building from that observation to a, a more normative perspective, which is in turn built on critical data studies, critical algorithm studies, other um, uh, important emerging disciplines in the broad field of algorithmic accountability. So we tie together the law and political economy approach to the economy and markets and the state with the critical algorithms, critical data studies approach to problems and technology. And I think putting them together, um, you get something like this licensure approach. You get something like an approach that says that essentially we need to um, flip a presumption of legality, um, at least with respect to some very uh, sensitive and important applications of AI to persons. Now, that may sound within the realm of law and technology, 
as something that is you know troubling or something that is uh, a, a big step that uh, would be a radical proposal, right? Um, if you if you're sort of are within the um, in in Washington D.C., what we'd call the Beltway, or within say the the very um, center of the mainstream of law and technology policy and AI, but we think that this sort of Overton window needs to be shifted a bit because essentially we have licensure as regulation in many different areas, right? I mean, if we think about driving, something as, as simple as driving, there are licenses out there that, uh, and the car has to be licensed and the driver has to be licensed. And that in itself is a very interesting dichotomy that we hope to explore is this idea of both the licensure of a given um, a technology and of the persons who use it. Because as I describe in New Laws of Robotics, a lot of the disputes over the future of AI and its applications are going to boil down to disputes, not just about a technology, but about the degree to which the persons who are applying it and using it are properly licensed and objective and independent so that they're able to apply that technology in a way that looks out for in a fiduciary way and with a larger public responsibility way um, looks out for the people that they are, are their clients, right? Um, we also know that in the, in the realm of drugs, very similar dynamic, right? Both the licensure of the drug and of the person who is able to prescribe it, at least with respect to um, a large variety of drugs that are out there, right? Um, there have also been in the more recent past proposals to for an FDA for algorithms by Andrew Tutt, um, which I think is a very smart proposal and something that you know is definitely at the one of the intellectual foundations of this work uh, in terms of its practical application in law. And also with respect to finan complex financial products, if you think about uh, derivatives, for example, uh, both Saleh Almarova, who is presently uh, President Biden's um, nominee to head the Office of the Comptroller of Currency, um, and uh, I believe Eric Posner, uh, maybe it was Posner in a while, both of them independently proposed in the early 2010s that complex financial products be licensed, that you essentially wouldn't be able to put out something like a credit default swap um, without getting that licensed by the proper authorities, right? Because of course there was prudential regulation in these financial markets. There was a sort of a rather light touch regulation uh, over through much of the George W. Bush administration in the US, um, but it was not enough to really get to the heart of these complex instruments. And I think there are some very uh, important parallels between what AI does and what algorithms do and what uh, derivatives do, right? I mean, a lot of these derivatives were essentially contracts that would essentially be made up of if-then statements based on some uh, condition precedent being satisfied that just led to all sorts of untoward and, un, uh, and, and in fact, disastrous results. And I think it makes a lot of sense for jurisdictions to say before these types of technologies, um, be there the, either the um, computing technologies of algorithms or the uh, financial technologies of derivatives are permitted, um, there has to be some entity capable of understanding their overall, overall approach, capable of putting in sufficient risk um, mitigation measures for example, you know, not allowing um, a large bank to agree to um, pay 400 times what its assets are um, if some condition happens, because that, of course, can lead to um, uh, a domino effect and a uh, too-big-to-fail dynamic. But those are all sort of ways in which this licensure as regulation approach is really 
um, uh, a way of dealing with the complexity of modern social life. And I recall, you know, there's a recent, there's a chapter in um, Julie Cohen's latest book talking about um, incredible complexity and how we we regulate it, right? And I think her she's done a terrific job critiquing extant ways of regulating and dealing with with complexity, ranging from medical to financial to uh, many other areas of complexity where we now see lots of AI applications. And I think you could almost uh, frame our project as being a response to this critique of extant approaches to regulating complexity and saying, we've got to move forward, right? We've got to move forward and take some of the lessons we've um, learned in driving and drugs um, with respect to algorithms, derivatives, and of course, AI. So our goal here is really to take AI accountability seriously and prevent the indiscriminate use of high-risk AI systems. We'll get into in a bit what a high-risk system would look like. Also to overcome the limits of the ex-post AI regulatory model. Um, just to think about this in the data context, because it's a little more close to hand. Um, I was recently giving a talk in Perth, Australia, and it was about um, the importance of um, regulatory approaches with privacy. And one of the students in the talk asked, well, couldn't we do something a little more lighter touch? I mean, couldn't we just allow people to understand where their data is going and let them contest it? And I said, well, you know, if you, you might take that approach and think that that sounds plausible if there are say three credit bureaus that you want to uh, try to correct your information at. But we now know, uh, according to the report, A Scoring of America, that at least in the US, there are thousands of entities that are scoring people and using their data and sometimes using data that is not not accurate, not adequate, um, et cetera. How do you manage that, right, as an individual? How do you manage a notice and consent regime in a world where there are literally thousands of entities that may be gathering data about you and or applying it in AI-mediated systems? Um, there's just not the time. Right? I mean, if you think about 3,000 potential entities um, and, and 365 days in the year, you know, we're talking about orders of magnitude. Nobody's going to be spending uh, 10, going to 10 different companies a day. And even if they did, they probably would run into trade secrecy protections, the whole stuff that I wrote about in Black Box Society. So we've got to move beyond this, right? We've got to move beyond an individual um, approach, what Nicole Duandre calls the work of watchdogging. Um, and moreover, uh, you know, what, what goes for the individual goes off our fiori for most of the regulatory bodies. They just don't have the personnel to monitor what's going on, but they could, I think, have the personnel to um, either approve or disapprove something um, in, in advance. And this is also about forcing AI providers to assess and justify the fairness of their systems. So um, the ex post model is the AI systems at high risk are permitted and individuals can contest eventual detriments after an explanation. This is an adversarial model. But the ex-ante model is that AI systems at high risk are prohibited until demonstrated safe, effective, and not likely to violate fundamental rights, right? So you've got to be able to bring in your training data and say, this actually represents the effective community. Um, you've got to be able to um, have certain ways of validating the algorithms to demonstrate that there are not going to be um, detrimental effects. Um, we see this with also medical devices and I think something similar, you know, is going on with respect to um, self-driving cars. Um, but I think we can move beyond that to many other areas. Uh, each AI should be proven to be not discriminatory, not unfair and not inaccurate. And the supervisor authority checks this justification and authorize it and individuals can have access to the justification contested. We should also note that in many industries where this is the norm, for example, in the Food and Drug Administration with respect to pharmaceuticals, the 
persons who are seeking the licenses have to provide user fees that supports the agency, right? So this is another way also of ensuring some levels of independence and continuity, right? We don't want a regime where we're continually wondering, well, is one regime, one party's gonna get in, it's gonna just end the regime. And then if the other one gets in, it's going to regulate to try to make up, uh, very aggressively to try to make up for all that the last past regime didn't. Um, we want to have something that's relatively stable, you know, and I think the model of the self-funding agency, the Prescription Drug User Fee Act in the U.S. is a model for accomplishing that. The benefits here are understanding the basis, the decision or system is not unfair and not discriminatory or manipulative. Um, we also uh, can avoid the need for the highly technical explanations that sometimes occur in these uh, post hoc uh, environments. Um, we try to move beyond the transparency policy, fallacy and the privacy paradox. And we can also note that even an unexplainable AI could be justified, right? So there are some real benefits here. So you could have even something that um, if you were not able to explain every single step, still could be justified according to certain of the licensure regime's uh, requirements. So at this point, I will hand it off um, to Jean-Claudio um, for the GDPR. And since I'm running the slideshow, Jean-Claudio, you, you can just tell me when to move to the next slide if that, if that works for you. So thanks. Professor Pasquale was uh, explaining the US situation and how a licensing model, an ex-ante justificatory licensing model is somehow compatible with the principles of US law because we already have we already license things, right? Uh, dangerous and high risk things. So what, what is the, the situation in the, in the European Union? Um, so actually what is interesting is that a justification model is already somehow um, a reality in the GDPR. <clears throat> we have been uh, talking a lot about automated decision-making, about Article 22 in Europe, so about if we have a right to an explanation for automated decisions and so on. But um, the, the discussion on uh, XI, explainable AI, uh, a great discussion for computer scientists and also for lawyers since five or six years, uh, even more, um, um, was focused on this ex post model. As uh, Frank was saying, we were focusing a lot on a right to ask for a justification, a right to contest the decision after the decision has been taken, right? Well, actually, if we try to focus on the ex-ante safeguards, the GDPR is already there. If we look at the principles of the GDPR, we have already the justifications there. We have already the, the main uh, sources for justification and not just explanation. So we were saying that the algorithm should be uh, fair, transparent, non-discriminatory, not manipulative. Justification is already there because uh, the GDPR already asks data controllers and company to respect these principles. So we advocate that actually this should be in a justificatory uh, explanations before the, the decision is taken, right? So justification should be required and in the justification the data controller should explain why the algorithm is lawful, why the algorithm is uh, fair, non-discriminatory, non-transparent, um, and so on, right? Uh, so also accuracy, we have been talking a lot about biases, 
but accuracy of data is already there, is already principled there. The only thing that we are advocating here is to do the justification excellently and not just exposed after that right to explanation is exercised, if that right can be properly exercised, because in many contexts, it's not even, contexts, it's not even possible. So um, um, our policy proposals was illegality by default, I know this might sound as really paternalistic and whatever, but I think it's the, the role of scholars to be the one asking for higher protection under a constitutional uh, uh, acceptable approach. So we, we claim that there should be pro prohibition of high-risk AI systems, but there's the possibility to prove that the algorithm is justified, that the AI system is justified. So the data controller could justify the algorithm, explain why and how it respects the core legal principles, and this could lead to a certification, what uh, Frank was, called, was calling a licensor, a license model, right? So the accountability principle shifts the burden of proof of legality on the controller. And uh, um, where do we take this justification? How can companies, because I mean, we, we cannot just ask for actions and without any particular um, um, uh, practical help to do that, right? There's already in many countries, in many jurisdictions, a duty to do the impact assessment of the AI. In Europe, we have the data protection impact assessment. In Canada, there's the algorithmic impact assessment for, for public entities, it's already there. Starting from these, we can, the data controllers can really use the results of algorithmic decision, uh, algorithmic impact assessment, uh, data protection impact assessment, human rights impact assessment, ethical impact assessment as a basis for the justification, for a justification based on these principles that are, let's say, you know, uh, general principles, okay? So uh, this was the idea behind certification, behind this policy proposal, and uh, uh, behind accountability uh, principles of illegality by default. Now we have a novelty, and you might, uh, I think you all know, the European Union proposal for the AI Act, Artificial Intelligence Act. Well, they already take a bit our, our approach, um, but in a more, uh, let's say, in a, in a softer, softer way, right? Why? Because they, they, there is, there is a, a layer of risk that is not accepted for manipulation leading to uh, physical or psychological arms or manipulation that exploits vulnerabilities based on age or disability. Uh, for uh, social scoring, you know, like the, the, the infamous example of social scoring happening in, um, in different countries, in particular was happening in China. Well, then in, in the European Union proposal, algorithm used for social scoring should be prohibited if uh, they act on a uh, decontextualized or unjustifiably detrimental basis and also indiscriminate facial recognition by police. Then there is a, a gray zone, which is the high risk zone that is not prohibited, but is uh, based on some design duties, credit scoring, assessment of workers, assessment of students, critical infrastructure, AI used in courts, AI used by police, border control and so on. And in this case, we have the, the, the producer and the user of AI, so the, the, the company using uh, these AI systems should have some design duties. So human oversight, data management plan, and so on. Then there is a, a limited risk area, emotion recognition and deep fake 
forward, we just have need to have transparency duties. Well, there are some potentialities and opportunities in this proposal, and it's a bit in line with what we were explaining, what uh, Frank and I were trying to propose as a policy proposal. Um, it's, it's good because there's, for the first time, a legal recognition of AI, uh, legal recognition of bias, legal recognition of uh, the problematic nature of manipulation, uh, um, in, in, let's say, uh, induced vulnerabilities, social scoring. Also, it prohibits many, many problematic things. So this is good. Uh, and it proposes uh, practical solutions uh, like human oversight, uh, contextualizing AI, data management plan. But there are some problems that we argue are problematic, are still on the table. Uh, first of all, um, the, the, the blacklist is still very limited. For example, manipulation is mentioned just for the physical or psychological harms, no mentioning of economic harms doing, done by algorithm manipulating our mind when we are on social media. Uh, vulnerability is mentioned just for age and disability, not, no other uh, approach of vulnerability are there. And the limited risk, the limited risk area is very, very weak. Can we really say that emotion recognition and other kinds of algorithms are just, uh, uh, I mean, just need some transparency duties, no opt-out, no possibility to go out. So, and also uh, there are no individual rights. So you see, there is, it is a bit um, um, close to our definition huh, of, um, of, uh, of licensing AI because it poses some AI as unlawful and some AI like the high risk AI that are not unlawful, but they need to have some additional duties. Um, we think that our model could solve many of the existing problems because the accountability would be ex ante and the justification would help. So just to... Um, um, these slides were like shared with Frank, but I think I can go on with the, with the final slides and then we wait if uh, Frank is, is, is uh, solving technical issues. Um, uh, two uh, problems, two big problems that we could, uh, two big criticisms we could receive in particular by um, US uh, uh, audience, but not, not only is that uh, it, might, uh, it might overload regulators. It, it might be impossible to give licenses to these uh, companies wanting to produce high-risk AI. Well, we could, we could uh, start from a very high level, highest risk, largest firms, uh, just to see how the model works. And um, uh, also, um, a fee model could fund the system. Uh, um, and, uh, and also about free expression, this is a, a known argument because actually uh, this is not a way to, to block freedom of expression. We are just asking a way to better regulate risks. And then uh, it's, it's, it's not prohibition, uh, it's still the possibility to prove, uh, to prove uh, that uh, the AI is justified. So uh, I think uh, this is the, the last slide. And, um, and, and the point here is that uh, in an extended justificatory model where high risk AI is prohibited, um, there are many benefits. Hmm? Uh, first of all, there's no high risk of circumvention of fake explanations at the end of the system or people that just don't do impact assessment. Then uh, also many problem of black boxes that cannot be opened 
cannot be explained might be uh, addressed here because actually you can always justify a business systems regardless of the explainability of the black box. And also the most dangerous AI would be prohibited and this is already in the proposal of AI. So already goes in this direction, the European Union uh, proposal already goes in this direction, but uh, the scope of high-risk AI is limited and uh, the sanction in case of non-justification is not a prohibition, you can just have some sanctions. So I think uh, for now is all, we'll take more than uh, our time. And uh, if there are questions, we are very happy to reply. And uh, I hope Frank is uh, coming back, otherwise I am there. <laughs>